You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Christopher Moore is the author of You Suck, A Dirty Job, Lamb, and Many Other Humorous Japes. His new novel is Fool. Thank you for joining me, Chris. You're welcome, Rick. Chris, this is a fairly, and no, it's an extremely ambitious book. What made you decide to take on Shakespeare? Well, I thought that um, if I could just ruin Shakespeare for one person, then my work would have been done. So... I thought, if anybody can ruin Shakespeare, I can. No, I, I actually didn't start out to write a Shakespearean book. This as is, you know, the retelling of King Lear from the point of view of the fool. But I set out to write a book about a fool. And my editor, Jennifer Brell, in New York, we had breakfast one day. And I said, I want to write a book about a fool, but I don't know whether to do just a generic fool or Lear's fool. And she said, oh, you have to do Lear's fool. Of course, that was the end of the commitment for her until I finished it. Um, I had to go learn Shakespeare's canon. And so it was... Uh, I, I always feel like I do my best work when I'm not sure whether I can pull it off or not. And I really, at taking this on, because I'm not an English major or anything, I, I hadn't had a literature course since, you know, 11th grade. Um, so it was very much self, uh, self-educating self and as far as uh, learning Shakespeare goes. So I, I don't know, it was a big challenge and, and that I just, sometimes I, I rise to that. So far, so good. Anyway. Well, well, tell us about immersing yourself in Shakespeare to prepare for writing this. Did you start writing before you started dunking yourself in Shakespeare? I actually didn't. I spent probably, um, I was finishing up the book before this, um, which was a vampire story and was set in San Francisco. And it was sort of, uh, I knew this was coming because I had proposed it a, a long time ago. And I... I started it by doing a historical tour of England, which was, you know, long before I started writing, like a year before I started writing, and just went around and looked at medieval stuff all over England. And I started reading Shakespeare, listening to DVDs of Shakespearean um, audio or uh, CDs of, of Shakespearean audio performances because I needed to develop an ear. And then going to see all the live performances that I could see that, you know, weren't so far that it was ridiculous. You know, I went all over Northern California where I live and then uh, actually got to see a fellow at the Globe in, in London and, and other performances and so forth. But I, I was trying to really develop an ear for the way they spoke because I knew I was going to have to do an idiom that wasn't really Elizabethan because Americans don't understand it. I don't understand it. Um, it really is requires translation, but it had to sound like it was Elizabethan and yet be funny and do all the other things to check the boxes. So I, I had to play it by ear. I couldn't try and construct iambic pentameter. How many times did you see, read, listen to King Lear? Oh, if you count all of them, the at least 30 i would say and that's and that's not even counting working from the play and each scene you know as i was writing the book you know uh, which i might do i might listen to the same scene or read the same scene 40 or 50 times just to figure out what was usable what wasn't usable and to have a real sense of it now beyond uh, shakespeare <clears throat> in this book there's a lot of history a lot of i mean this is kind of a very remixed uh uh, mashup kind of book. Mashup <laughs> is a good way to look at it. Well, yeah, I was sort of, um, 
what's the word? I was freed up to do that because King Lear itself, Shakespeare's King Lear, is a massive anachronism. It's set in um, what we appears to be the, about the 12th or 13th century because of all the infrastructure of the time, castles and knights and dukes and whatnot. But the real King Lear, as far as we know, if there was one, lived about 400 BC, which is like the height of the Greek and Roman empires. You know, it's totally not um, what was going on in England at the time. It would have been, you know, Lear's castle would have been a mud fence and, and there were no dukes and it was tribal basically at that time. And they certainly weren't speaking English. And so then you have that, and then you have the added Elizabethan language and, and terminology and, and morals um, imposed on the play. You know, so you have 16th century stuff. So I just basically took generic Robin Hood and took all the cool stuff out of, um, out of English medieval history that I, I wanted to use and just put it into the book. For instance, like the... Uh, conflict between the Druids and, and the Christians that went on, and even the Roman pantheon. It went on probably about the eh, 500 AD, 4 or 500 AD, up to 800 AD. Well, that that's not when this story takes place, but I thought, well, that would be cool if we put that in, because the original King Lear was supposed to have been a priest of Minerva and had built the temple at Bath. He discovered the famous Baths at Bath, um, and built a temple at Bath and became a necromancer. And so all that from legend, you know, goes back to a different pantheon than sort of Catholics versus Druids. So I just put them all in. One of the things that's interesting this, in this book is your ability to clue us in <laughs> on uh, how, when you're giving us little bits of real history and when stuff is coming from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about, as a writer, like just tweaking the reader so that we know that, okay, he's talking about real history here, even though it's kind of out of term, out of, out of order. I don't, know how, I don't know how perceptible that was to a reader. I, I think that um, I footnoted it a little bit, mm-hmm. so that especially for terms. You know, you learn like parts of a castle, and, and I basically defined stuff that I didn't know what it was before I started reaching, uh, researching this book, but you kind of need to know the name of it, like a portcullis, which is that grady thing that's in front of a castle door. And um, um, a portis lodge, which is the sort of apartment that's over a castle. That's where you put the cranks for bringing up the drawbridge and so forth. And I figured nobody's going to know what that is. So I put that in. So there was there was a little bit of footnoting, which I think a lot of people find irritating. Oh, um, no, but it, we'll, t- we'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, we can talk about that later. Um, but then the other thing was um, it's a first-person narrator, and he's not educating him. You know, the last time I did this with, was which, with my book, Lamb. And the narrator, which takes place in biblical time, in gospel times, and the narrator, Biff, knows that he's telling you about his world and you don't know about it because it's an ancient man talking to modern people. Well, in this book, Pocket, who is our narrator, the fool, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He's more about being self-aggrandized, aggrandizing, I guess is the word. And so he doesn't stop to explain stuff to you because it 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 would be out of character. So there's... That was one of the reasons I had to um, I had to either show it in context so you'd figure it out really quickly, or I just had to blow through and put a footnote in or just figure, well, you don't get to know that unless you look it up. But I don't think it's that obscure. The most important thing was that it was very accessible to a modern American audience, but felt Shakespeare-y. <laughs> now, um, 
speaking of history, one of the things I think that jumped out at me, I said, wow, this is great. And it, and it's so well done, is the retail and discount Pope. <laughs> Tell well, us about the retail and discount well, Pope. Well, you know, th there was so much going on um, in medieval times, especially late medieval times, running right up into the Renaissance, with the, the Catholic Church as a business. And the business of selling dispensations and, and how, you know, the printing press basically came out of a need to print coupons that you could sell at Lourdes and places. And, you know, so it was another means of income for the clergy. And then you had, um, you can't really study English history without coming through, you know, over Henry VIII establishing the Church of England and really, you know, and taking all the property of, of the Catholic Church and then realizing just how much property that was. You know, I mean, they really owned about 80% of England. Um, so so it, it be, really became this battle of commerce. And I thought, well, it would be interesting if that, if, if when there was the great schism in the church, if they had really thrown down on the basis of price instead of on the basis of, of, of sort of geography, which is what they did. And, uh, and so I basically had the schism in the church happening over one pope charges retail and one just keeps cutting price for special dispensation and get out of purgatory free cards until, you know, you have like topless nun night and at one church and, you know, uh, bacon cheese hosts at, at another for it. Yeah, it got ugly. Um. <laughs> I have to note, too, that on what is essentially the very first page of the book, you take the first of many jabs at current day politics. Well, and the way I, I did that is is because I talk, I know the line you're talking about where it talks about um, there, have, there have always been ravens at the White Tower, which is the Tower of London. Um, even back in the days before uh, King George II, the idiot King of America, destroyed the world. Um, and it's pretty obvious who that's talking about. Uh, but what I did is, I, is, since I knew it was going to be sort of an imaginary historical book, I thought, well, maybe it happens in the far, far future after the whole world has ended and it's been rebuilt back to the Middle Ages. And it kind of just happened a little bit differently. But I don't ever stop to just say that's what happened. I, you just There's a couple of references in the book to the Americans who, have, who are mythical. They're so far in the past that people like, and we don't know what happened to them, but you know, they, they were either cannibals or pygmies or something. But merchants, we know they were merchants. Um, and, and so it, it allowed me to make some sort of current political uh, statements without it taking away from the story. And, and that was, it comes from the fact that the whole impetus for writing a book about a fool was the fool was the character that could speak truth to power and not be killed for it. And, um, and I had felt really like that was kind of what was happening in our country for eight years or so is the only people that were telling us the truth were the comedians and everybody else seemed to be afraid um and so uh so that that was a big part of it and and but it, it certainly isn't a political novel other than it's you know as much as it's just a very body comedy tragedy turns to a comedy body I, I that's like the understatement of the year now one of the things that's very interesting about this book is you describe several scenes in here that you could not put in a Mitchell Brothers movie. <laughs> but because of the language you use, you get away with it. I mean, there's things in here that are triple X rated, no yeah. one under 65 unless they're still, unless they're dead, yeah. admitted. You could might bring them back to life if you could read to them aloud. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's basically, um, what would the word be? I, I don't know. It's, um, it's like, 
Elizabethan porn, I guess. Uh, but it's just wildly silly. For one, I, I, as you know from my other books, there's always a lot of goofy sex jokes in them because I think sex is funny if properly done, and um, <laughs> and um, and especially if not properly done. But I, I, I just there, there's this sort of music to the language of of swearing that that comes when you start using English idiom and modern as well as as well as. Um, ancient but but the the brits are so much more open and not proper as you would think about using profanity that in this country you just the entire bible belt would faint at the stuff that you might hear in a in a shop in in london you know this from an old lady you know they think nothing of it and um and so i i used a lot of it was just language describing bizarre stuff and plus the main character Pocket is sort of this very ineffectual, tiny little guy, least powerful member of court. He says basically his status quo is about to be hanged. And and yet his one way of sort of getting back at the world is to basically shag Lear's daughters. And that becomes sort of a, a major subplot to the whole, entire book, which, you know, in the play... You know, it's all about Lear's daughters and, and who will become queen and who will receive inheritance of, of England or Britain. Um, and uh, But in Fool, it's all about that, of course, but also pocket shagging all of them. Uh, and pretty much anything that doesn't move or, or moves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have to say that uh, you managed to really... This is carpet bombing with the f-bomb <laughs> and, and you use it well so and you talked about the musicality of swearing <clears throat> did you get any blowback when you were talking from from your editors or when you said well maybe take about 500 of those out of there no i think that you know they were either going to go with it or they weren't going to go with it and 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 they know who i am they know um I send. Uh, I send. I worked with Jennifer Brell on I think five books now, maybe six books, five books, and and I send her the first hundred pages, and that pretty much you know how it's going to go by that point. And and there's always a note that's like too many boobs, or <laughs> too much too much swearing. And with this book, I just thought this is just who Pocket is, and. And when you read sort of unexpurgated stuff from the Middle Ages, not necessarily from the the Renaissance or the the Elizabethan period, but from the Middle Ages when this book takes place, they were all about physical body comedy, and and it was extremely obscene. Um, uh, the, doing the job that Pocket does, so he has to be really good at it, and it turns out that he really is. Um, he's he's sort of a genius level foul mouth. Um, and yet he gets the story told in that in that process. Um, there's really a lot of echoes. I thought of Chaucer in here too. Well, I I think that that that's actually more medieval than than Shakespeare. And Chaucer is is more body than Shakespeare. One of the things that we to get really nerdy about it. Um, I think Shakespeare would have been a lot more body. But you have to understand at the time that he's writing, you know, the Puritans are rising up in in England, and they are. Well, they're such tight asses that they actually were thrown out of England and ended up in Plymouth Rock, you know. So it's, I mean, it's basically you people really need to just have a beer and chill and um, do it on the new in the new world. Um, so, so Shakespeare was not unaware of that. So his his more body plays 
tend to euphemize a lot, but we don't know how they were performed or what was going on. You know, there's no stage direction in those plays. But um, I, I, as I said, I got to see Othello at the Globe. And when you really listen to what Othello is saying, I mean, it's, it's a pretty... There's an awful lot of talk of shagging in it. It's just not called that, you know, um, because and, and I think that was more or less social pressure because certainly the groundlings would have loved it. Um, anyway. Now, one thing that kind of surprised me is you're noted as a writer. Most of your books have had some element of the supernatural. In them. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare is pretty rife with the supernatural. But you kind of ratcheted back, I thought, a little bit on this book. Well, there's a ghost. There you know, is, Because yes. there's always a bloody ghost, you know. <laughs> yes. So you had to have a ghost of a, some, you know, long-haunted parent kind of coming back on the battlements, you know. And, and she appears in the battlements the same way the, the uh, ghost of Hamlet's father does, except she's a lot more articulate. Um, and, uh, and then there's the witches from Macbeth. So mm-hmm. basically, I, it still had the supernatural stuff going on, but I just used the supernatural... Uh, oeuvre, if you will, or, or, or repertoire of, of Shakespeare himself. So it all seemed to sort of piecemeal together. I mean, if you look at something like Midsummer Night's Dream, which there's also elements in this in this book from that, um, th- I mean, there's nothing but magic going on in that book you know, or in that play. You know, so, yeah, it was, uh, it, it's still there. It's just a little bit more, I don't know, uh, integral to what's going on instead of, you know, just, just people's heads getting ripped off and stuff blowing up, which is, you know, my fave. <laughs> uh, and, and you did mix a, remix a lot of different Shakespeare plays in here. This is like a little mini course in Shakespeare. I, talk about doing that. I think there will be a point where some poor undergrad student is going to have to go through and find all the allusions to the different plays. There's lines like from Coriolanus, who like seven people in history have read. And... Um, Eight um, counting you. Yeah, yeah, counting me, and the twice that I had to go through it. Uh, there, yeah, I did. I, there was a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was doing that, you know, listening by ear, picking great, great passages. I, I hadn't been familiar with Love's Love's Labor Lost, and there's great rhythmic speeches by uh, Rosalind in uh, Love's Labor Lost, where she's saying, "You've got to hit it, hit it, hit it, good," <laughs> and it's like. Oh my God! She, you know, this could be a hip hop song, and um, and and more or less that's what I have. One of the princesses is sort of uh, predisposed toward self punishment, and um, and so she uses some of those para- either quotes or paraphrases some of Rosalind's speech, and um, and that kind of goes on. There was just I got to pick and choose those really kind of cool lines, uh, many from Lear, obviously. You know how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child, and um, get, stand not between the dragon and his wrath and then there was always the the great opportunity of having the perfect thing to say back to him after he says some of these pompous things that he says um, because by the time I was done with the research I was really sick of King Lear he's sort of sympathetic the first time you watch the play but after you've watched it you know 20-30 times you're like oh just kill him just quit whining you old bastard and, um, and so that's sort of where the book ended up going now, um, one thing about Shakespeare is he's a great source of uh, insults, mm-hmm. and you got to mine those uh, extensively. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, you know, I made up most. I had really a, a, a choice. There's actually some really good Shakespeare um, insult generators on the web, and it would have been sort of the easy way out to just click refresh and come up with new ways, but I really sort of took pride on um, 
constructing them myself. So they probably could have been more um, artfully done, but I, I sort of picked those things that um, there's some great insults in The Tempest, you know, as as um, they're directed to Caliban, the monster, you know, and, and, and Caliban also uh, offering services of, you know, let me set some of his teeth master, the scurvy patch, you know, and, you know, a scurvy patch. I don't know what that is, but it sounds really bad. So I have people being called uh, scurvy patches and rascals and stuff quite a bit. And, uh, but, there, you know, so I used vocabulary that was native to Shakespeare somewhat. I used that modern um, British idiom that uh, quite a bit. And, um, but I tried to not just, you know, pick whole Shakespearean insults right out of the, um, right, right out of the plays. There's one actually in, in Lear where, uh, the Earl of Kent trips Oswald, who's a most pernicious jerk. And, um, and he calls him, you base football player. Well, and at the time that was a horrible insult, but if I were to put that into a modern book, everybody would go, did he just call him a soccer player? That just doesn't seem that bad. So he calls him something else that's a little that's a little more uh, invokes a little more disdain than than that that at its time would have been sort of very negative to Shakespeare. Um, could you talk a little bit uh, about getting the prose? That this book has a remarkably consistent mixture of prose. It's like a stew or a curry. I mean, you have there's lots of bits that seem modern, bits that seem Shakespearean, but it seems very consistent all the way through. It reads really, really well. Well, that's, yes, I meant for it to read very, very well. Rick, thank you. Um, <laughs> again, it was playing by ear. It really was it, it, to try. I actually tr sat down and tried to write a couple of pages in iambic pentameter because, you know, we're always told from, you know, ninth grade that Shakespeare's written, write, wrote in iambic pentameter. And it occurred to me that to do that, you're not writing mathematically. You're writing by ear. Um, and it just becomes natural because it just would take, it would take 12 years to write this book in iambic pentameter to try and construct each line, you know, with those beats, da, 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 da. Um, but if you just try to think in it so that it's natural, you know, almost as if you have a rhythm going in your head. So basically by exposing myself to all this audio Shakespeare to a lot of British sitcoms that I watched, which was not that hard to research, actually. Um, I sort of picked up a way that Pocket spoke that I could write. And since he tells the story, it's kept the diction consistent. Um, it, was, it was when I was trying to make him say something colorful that it was work. You know, and it wasn't so much getting people from point A to point B. It was trying to get them from point A to point B without it just being mundane. And, and yet not make it appear that Pocket was trying too much. I, I, I talk about this. As a writer, you think, oh, this was hard. This was hard. And then you realize people who do real work, like with a shovel or a hammer or something, are thinking, dude, you didn't even get out of your PJs when you were doing this. So it's not really that hard to work. Um, you know, I can't really whine about how hard it was. It was difficult for me because I'm not that bright. But it, I'm sure that for, for people who are smart, they would have gone, well, yeah, of course. Um, but people who are smart don't put these kind of things together, which is I have that ability to not have it occur to me that this is an incredibly unwise idea to pursue, you know, until it's too late. You know, I've got three quarters of a book and I go, okay, I got to finish it now or they won't pay me. Um, but it, it was basically all just like playing by ear. Like I didn't know a note of, of um, I didn't know a note of music, but I knew a few uh, chords and, and I could play enough to, to, 
to improvise on those. And, and that's sort of how I approached it was much more musically than I did mathematically. If that makes any sense at all, I have no idea. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. I, the other thing that's very interesting in, in here is the um, interplay of the different uh, types of humor. It's kind of, this is like a, a brief history of British humor. Well, I think that I've always sort of taken, I think it's it's difficult to write a funny book. Again, difficult for something that you can do in your PJs. Um, and I am I get so tired of reading reviews or jacket blurbs or something that says it's hilarious. And it's like, no, it's not hilarious. You know, there's like a funny thing in it, which isn't enough to carry a novel. So if you were to only do, say, you know, like rhetorical humor, like Noel Coward or something like that, or or something that was very, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde, then you you, you sort of limit uh, the m amount of funny stuff you can have happen. But if you have goofy characters, and if you have funny dialogue, and if you have creative swearing, and if you have body, you know, sex scenes, and if you have just basically stupid slapstick, if you just use funny sounding words, which I did a lot of, and you just sort of throw it all at the wall and see what sticks, then what you tend to end up with is a is a pretty funny book that insults a lot of people and uh, and that's that's what I'm going for is just to alienate alienate those people who only want Noel Coward um, one thing that that I thought was was really interesting um, was this idea you mentioned this earlier of uh, speaking truth to power mm -hmm. uh, and, and this was uh, I think apparent early on and it was very well used well it I, I can't take complete credit for that because that is the one thing that happens in the play before the fool disappears in the play halfway through he's the only one that tells Lear you're completely out of your mind and he does it with without really any consequence um, Lear's best friend Kent says you're being complete nitwit more or less I'm paraphrasing and Lear banishes him um, but but the fool it says, look, you're, you've given everything else away. You've become a fool yourself at, at probably the fool's biggest scene in the play. So it, that was a, you know, archetypically the role of, of a fool, but also the role of the fool in, um, in King Lear. So I didn't, I, you know, I can't take complete credit for that. What I was able to do was play it out a little bit more and, and as you pointed out before, use it to maybe comment on our own time. Like there's a line, my favorite line that Pocket says um, is to Kent, when Kent is wondering why am I loyal to Lear when Lear's been basically such an ass bag, and um, it's an academic term, and uh, and Pocket says is uh, is loyalty still a virtue when paid to virtue stranger, and I thought we had seen so much of that in in our own uh, you know political world lately was why are you being lo loyalty isn't a virtue if this guy is like you know Satan's assistant. Um, you know, it's still not a good thing. It's, it's just, you know, uh, I don't want to overuse the metaphor of the good German, but it's like, dude, you know, standing behind somebody who's blatantly wrong is not a good thing. And, and somehow you've managed to pervert your own, um, your own ethics by thinking that loyalty stands above without looking at the subject of the loyalty. So I did sort of explore that and, and with a number, with more than a few of the characters looking at it and saying, wow, these people are all acting hideously. Why am I paying them fealty? Why do I feel that it's a virtue for me to be loyal to someone who has no virtue? Um, and, uh, and, and so it was, uh, it was my way of sort of commenting on maybe the human condition in this 
very goofy story, um, as well as maybe what's currently political. I think that there's, you, I don't, I think it's, you, you write political humor at your peril if you're a novelist, because it takes, you know, by the time the book comes out, whatever you've written is irrelevant. But if you write about the human condition and maybe how that, how power and politics affects the whole human condition, then it endures, um, I hope, anyway. When you're doing something like this, which is a, a, a broad satire with a lot of really goofy characters, the F word more times, and you're going to hear it in mm -hmm. many places, all sorts of wild sex and stuff, one of the dangers is that um, the characters won't strike home. And one of the things you do very well in this novel is to make us really care about some of the characters and really dislike some of them as mm -hmm. well, um, which makes it funnier and makes it really involving to read. I mean, there are some uh, t touching scenes in here. Well, I think that I think that you just have to. I had a really good teacher um, when I was sort of coming into my craft in my in my mid twenties, I guess. A guy named Shelley Lowenkoff, who taught at USC at the time, but I took extension courses and workshops from, and he really taught from character, and how to look at character, and and it's always been my uh, take on a book, especially a funny book, that if you, you have to have a character you're rooting for. There has to be someone whose journey matters to you. And I, I even now have trouble watching movies or television shows where I can't find one redeemable character to root for. Um, and, and so I, I work at that. There's different methods and tricks that you use, but basically you just try to construct someone that you go, oh, I would love to hang out with that guy. Or, or he show, you know, Pocket is complete rascal. He's reprehensible in so many ways, but he has, you know, he's still got... Um, a sense of nobility in that he's brave he's extraordinarily brave and he's uh you know he has loyalty to his assistant drool who is this um monstrous beef-brained bloke that uh that sort of follows him around to learn his craft and um and kent who who is the real um in shakespeare's play kent the banished friend of king lear is sort of the moral center of the play he's the only guy that through the whole shakespearean play doesn't turn into a complete jerk one way or another. He's not seduced by power. He's not, you know, he is a good old soldier. And he remains so in my book, too. So I think he's very likable. And and, uh, and yet Pocket gives him no end of trouble, but at the same time, you know, making sure that he's sort of taken care of. Could you talk about creating some of the villains who are also... Uh kind of appealing in some ways even though we don't like them we, we they're they're fun to be around well they're they're charming edmund is 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 in the again i i have to give will credit edmund is the bastard edmund and edmund is probably the most eloquent uh person in the entire play and he he has soliloquies he just comes out and talks to the audience about you know i've just been dealt a bad hand you know because i'm a bastard and and why should i be and he just kind of whines but very eloquently and he's just drippingly evil um and so he there's a point in in my book where he becomes he decides that pleasantness is the way to go no one will ever suspect that you're <laughs> that you're really evil if you're very pleasant to them so he's in, he's horribly polite to pocket and polite and and pocket keeps saying that's very off-putting i really wish you'd stop that you know and he's you know, and pocket walks in with this horrible insult to him and and uh, edmund says oh well done well done i may have to recover it's i've, I've been injured so badly um so I, I i i guess i've written i think some fun villains in the past monsters that eat people but they're kind of cool 
Um, and and I think that in a way, it's almost easier to write a compelling villain that is a, than is a compelling good guy. You know, um, you have to give them a little self-interest. You have to give them a motivation that, that people will believe because I think people innately want to think that people want to, characters want to do the right thing. Um, but villain, so you can't just have a villain go, I got up this morning and thought I'd be evil. Um, so you have to give them an agenda. And that's the, the case with creating any character is they have to have an agenda, whether good, bad, and different. Usually it's selfish, but um, whether your selfishness aligns with being an ethical and heroic character or not depends on whether you, which side of the, the line of being a villain or, or being a hero you, you tend to be. Um, I, I, that's sort of an inside baseball analytical look at it, but you've asked, how do you make characters? That's how you make them. Um, the Earl of Cornwall, who is uh, Regan, the, the middle daughter's husband, is just a hideous, hideous person. And it's just... You know, he gouges an old man's eyes out. I didn't make that up. People are like, don't you think you should have cut some of this stuff from the from the book? And I'm like, yeah, where he gouges the old man's eyes out, which I didn't put in there, you know. Um, uh, and he's, uh, when he's introduced, it was, he's introduced as pure-blown evil. He'd dirk a nun for, the, for a farthing or uh, short the coin for the fun. That's how we first meet Cornwall. And basically that's sort of using archaic English. It's like he'd stab a nun for, for a penny, or if you didn't have a penny, he'd just do it for fun. And that gives you an idea of what his character is. So I don't know, There's sometimes you can set up a villain pretty quickly because you see him through Pocket's eyes. Yeah. Now this book is written in the first person, which is somewhat unusual in your oeuvre. Yeah, I've only done one before, which was Lamb, uh, also a historical, and that was done from the point of view of of Christ's childhood pal Biff. Um, it was important because of the la I couldn't do the language. You know, it, it was going to be a Shakespearean. Um, if it was going to be a Shakespearean uh, book, it had to pay pay homage to the language, and I couldn't do the language unless it was told by a character who spoke in that particular idiom. So it was it, it wasn't any choice but it had to be pocket story and uh, and I liked the idea that he's so powerful and so I mean so powerless and so sort of um, physically diminutive and just sort of the you know lives with the rats in the kitchen but he basically ends up pulling all the strings in the kingdom by the end of the book. So sorry spoiler. Um but <laughs> But it, but he, but he never sees it as such. He never sees it as that he's the one manipulating things. He just sort of is, sees that that he's just living by his wits, and he just happens to overcompensate sometimes. You know, writing this book must have been a challenge in terms of because you had you were trying to fit this narrative into so many different corsets. I mean, this is like trying to put somebody into 27 different corsets at the same time. You've got Shakespeare, you've got history, you've got all these little, all these different things pulling at you. Could you talk about resolving that? Well, you do have one guide, and that's what's entertaining, you know, what's going to drive people through. And so when, you know, if history doesn't fit with that, oh, well, you throw history out. And if Shakespeare doesn't fit with that, you throw Shakespeare out. Um, the, the other advantage of is if you've really created a heinous villain, you get to kill him heinous, heinously, you know, or, or ironically, you have some great ironic death for them. Um, but, but the main thing that you, the discipline that you have to say is, is this entertaining and at any given page, if you open it, is it going to be entertaining? And, and that's the guide that you, that you follow. And so those other aspects that you want to bring into it, um, 
it's uh, you know you you can't hammer a, a square peg in a round hole. You know it, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. You just have to hopefully look far enough ahead to go. Well, this is gonna work. And and in a novel, you have a little bit of flexibility, like the thing that you uh, referred to earlier about the discount pope and the retail pope. It's not really germane to the story. It's an aside. It's just me being kind of Weasley. Um, and you can do that in a novel. You can take a page or two and go off down some road that, as long as it's mildly amusing, people will go, okay, I'll give him that. Um, and, uh, and, and so I don't have to be as disciplined as it might seem. The thing that was really uh, strict, I guess, was the play. Was, because, I mean, a couple of reviewers have, have sort of um, accused me of having it be over-complex. The, the ending be overcome overly complex it's almost exactly with the addition of this other character it's almost exactly what happens in the play which is overly complex there's a lot of characters in this play and then they're doing a lot of each is following his own selfish agenda and the differences in this novel is i have pocket basically say this is what everyone's agenda is because you don't have the advantage of seeing oh it's the guy in red he's the one that wants the girl in pink which you can see if it's performed but, you know, when you start seeing, it blurs together, especially for me, a modern American mind, to see the Duke of Albany or the Duke of Cornwall or the Earl of Kent, you know, or the Earl of Gloucester. You know, those mean nothing to me unless I've, I've given enough attributes to them. So um, that was a discipline that, that I sort of had to pound the story into was to make this medieval world work with a, with a hopefully quickly paced, you know, interesting comic story. Let's get back to something I mentioned earlier, the footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> Using footnotes for you, you have a couple of places where the footnotes are are humorous and mm -hmm. could could you talk about using footnotes for humor and then kind of building in and the footnotes also lead me to another question about just when you're you're publishing this book in 21st century America. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who read are, you know, on the decline. Right. People who have even, you know, who would like dare to think about Shakespeare or mention it are, are, you know, not very common. So you have to like prepare an audience that is probably never read Shakespeare, never wants to read Shakespeare to read your book. Yeah, it's going to be asking a lot, especially my last book, You Suck, A Love Story, garnered me all these sort of, you know, 16 and 17 year old fans, you know, because they saw a book. Oh, it's a book called You Suck. And it's somebody who talks like me. Um, because the narrator, the partial narrator of that book is a 16-year-old goth girl who couldn't be any more misogynist. Um, and that brand new audience, the next book they hit is Fool, which is, you know, this Elizabethan, you know, bastardy or whatever it is. Mashup is a better word for it, I guess. Um, and I, I, I don't know how to answer, you know, how do you get those people to work? I mean, I, I would like to say in, in very nobly, well, what I hope this will be is a, a door into Shakespeare for them, making it accessible th through loads of murder and shagging. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know that that's the case. I, I, you know, it, I, I tried to make it so that I could understand it without having to look anything up. And... Um, and I hope that, and I, and I haven't had anybody write to me and say, I just don't get it. It's too hard. Um, so, so far, so good on that. And it's, you know, it's sold better than anything that I've written before. Um, when you're doing it, you just can't over, you can't second guess yourself too much. You know, there's, I talk a lot about 
living on a wave of as a writer where the crest is you're the you're the master of the universe and the trough is you're the scum of the earth and that that wave pretty much oscillates all through your day um, and um and you just can't second guess yourself you can't go oh my god what if they don't get it what if they don't get it you have to have a vision of what you're trying to do and then and then do it and then when you finish it go okay is this inaccessible um and I don't think it was. I mean, but in I think the first fifty pages or so of the book, you're you're writing a contract with the reader who's going, okay, this is how this is going to be. And if they were coming into it expecting exactly what they saw in the last book or the book before that or the book before that, okay, well, this is different. But you know, I have the advantage of having now. This is my eleventh book. Some sort of kind of contract with people that I'm not going to let them down if they'll just put up with my whatever goofy crap I've put them through that they'll pay off they'll be entertained and so far so good on that but um the the second guessing you know uh, to be honest I didn't know whether I could do it when I started this book but I didn't know whether I could do lamb when I started that book I didn't know whether I could do fluke which is my marine biologist comedy um when I started it because I didn't know anything about marine biology either um and and picking books that you're not sure that you can pull it off is you know, one of these days I'm not gonna, and they're gonna go, well, dude, you can't believe that you blew it this badly. Remember all those good books you wrote? <laughs> um, but I can't act like I knew I was gonna be able to do this when I was doing it. I mean, up three quarters of the way through it, I know if I looked at my journal, it would say, this was the stupidest idea I've ever had. What was I thinking that I was taking on the greatest writer who ever lived and turning his greatest tragedy into, a, into a, or maybe second greatest tragedy, um, into a comedy? Um, I don't know. I have no answer for that. <laughs> well, are you working on another Elizabethan farce? I don't think so. I, I kind of want to write in modern American idiom for a while. I'm going to do, uh, I'm, I'm working on another vampire book right now um, called Bite Me, A Love Story, set in San Francisco with some return characters from other books. And then I'm going to write about French painters in, in, in 19th century Paris. Another book that I have absolutely no idea whether I can do it. And if I can do it, can I make it funny? But I'm interested in it. I like uh, Paris, so I'm learning to paint with oils. And I'm trying to learn to speak French. And hopefully by the time I have to start writing this book and researching this book, I will be able to do both of those things well enough to bluff my way through a novel. So we'll see. And you get to travel to Paris. There is that. There is that aspect of, oh, no, I have to spend two months in Paris researching this book. Again, going back to that, how hard, how hard was it for you? Well, I had to live on Ile Saint Louis for two months in, in the heart of Paris. And, you know, it's, so I have suffered for my art. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Chris Moore. His new book is Fool. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Rick. Take care. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.